Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 74, Laser Squad, in which we hear about how lasers began to change how chemistry is done in the 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We haven't talked a whole lot about new developments in physical chemistry in quite a while other than to keep mentioning how quantum mechanics from the 1920s and 1930s changed organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry. So let's return to physical chemistry itself and see how the invention of the laser revitalized physical chemistry in many ways during the 1970s. First, we need to talk about lasers and what makes them so different from other light sources like light bulbs, cathode ray tubes, candles, neon lighting, and fluorescent bulbs of the mid-20th century. Most people classify this invention as derived from applied physics, but there are chemical aspects, as we shall see. The original idea for the laser process was mentioned by Albert Einstein in a 1917 paper called The Quantum Theory of Radiation, published in a physics journal called Physikalische Zeitschrift. Recall that early quantum chemistry was less than 20 years old at the time, still inching its way to acceptance in the science world, and many aspects of it were unclear. As Einstein in his paper said, quote, The processes of emission and absorption of radiation in matter, which is still in such darkness for us, unquote. Modern quantum mechanics was still a decade in the future, along with a more complete understanding of electrons' paths around atoms and molecules. One of the ideas that Einstein figured out was this. Let's assume we have a large ensemble of atoms with extra energy. Suppose a photon passes by, and if it has the right energy it can stimulate one of these atoms to emit a photon and drop down to a lower level. This new photon can also stimulate another atom to emit a photon, and so on, and soon you have a chain reaction, if you like, a sudden blast of identical photons all coming from this large grouping of atoms. The identical photons have the same wavelength, carry the same energy, and even are in phase with each other, or what we in the modern world call coherent. This is very weird compared with 20th century illumination technology. Incandescent bulbs, fluorescent bulbs, candles, fires, and so on, all emit light of different wavelengths simultaneously, and the light waves coming out are not in step with each other. So when Einstein published his paper, It was a purely theoretical idea, with no way to jack up atoms to a higher energy state and suddenly get them all to emit monochromatic light in phase. In 1939, a young Soviet physicist, Valentin Fabrikant, wrote his doctoral dissertation, 
and one chapter on experimental evidence for the existence of negative absorption mentioned how to run experiments on light amplification just as Einstein suggested. Fabricant's research was interrupted, as you might expect, by World War II, but he restarted it immediately after the war ended. By 1951, Fabricant and two colleagues, M. Vudinsky and F. Butayeva, submitted an application for a patent on precisely this technique called Method for Amplification of Electromagnetic Radiation, Ultraviolet, Visible, Infrared, and Radio Wave Bands. Unfortunately, in 1955, the application was rejected. But then the rejection was retracted, and they received a patent for their process in December 1958, which was published the following year. But great minds think alike, and a similar idea was taking shape in the USA at exactly the same time. Charles Towns, who worked on radar technology at Bell Labs during World War II, became a professor of physics at Columbia University in 1950, and decided to work on microwave spectroscopy, a new cool thing in the scientific world to help determine molecular structures. By 1951, Towns came up with a way to create population inversions in ammonia gas and spent several years to build a working system that he called Microwave Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation, or a MASER, by 1954. His brother-in-law, Arthur Schaffloff, a professor on the opposite American coast at Stanford University, figured out how to extend generation of coherent photons from the microwave range to shorter and shorter wavelengths down to the visible spectrum. The paper was published in December 1958, the same time that Fabricant's patent was accepted, under the title Infrared and Optical Masers. But wait! Clearly the idea was in the air, for yet another claimant to inventor of the laser appears. A graduate student at Columbia University, Gordon Gould, talked with Towns in 1956 about how to optically pump a maser to get light. By 1957, Gould had ideas on how to build an optical maser and recorded them in his laboratory notebook in November 1957. He even found a local shop with a notary public who officially witnessed the document. In his notebook, he wrote, quote, some rough calculations on the feasibility of a laser, light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, unquote. This is the first time the word laser was used. An actual working laser was first built by Theodore Maimon on May 16, 1960, at the Atomic Physics Department of the Hughes Aircraft Company. For the ensemble of atoms, his system used an artificial ruby crystal, and the laser emitted red light at a wavelength of 694 nanometers. So now we can shoot an unusual beam of light in which all the light waves come out in step with each other and at the same wavelength. 
How does this apply to chemistry? A college junior, that is, third year out of four years in American universities, doing a double major in chemistry and physics, named Richard Zare, had heard about this new laser thing. He got his doctorate in molecular fluorescence and photodissociation, and as he told it, quote, "I thought of the idea of using a laser to excite molecules and cause them to fluoresce." When I was a beginning faculty member of the Department of Chemistry and the Department of Physics and Astrophysics of the University of Colorado, both without tenure, as well as a member of what was then known as the Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics, later renamed simply JILA, in Boulder, Colorado.、Unquote. Of course, back in the mid-1960s, you couldn't just buy an off-the-shelf working laser. You had to build it yourself. So he and his staff members spent three months constructing a helium-neon laser. You may have seen these lasers as long rectangular boxes, which became fairly common in the 1970s and 1980s. They use low-pressure helium and neon in a ratio of 10 to 1 as the ensemble of atoms, and a high-voltage electrical spark across the gas in a tube. To get the laser started, such a laser emits orangey-red light at 633 nanometers wavelength. To excite the electrons in molecules to an upper orbital, you need to match that laser output of photons to the jump energy of those electrons. His first test of this system was two atom molecules of potassium metal, K2, which he got by heating potassium metal in a glass container in a vacuum. The glass container has ports to let the laser light in and out. The paper was called "Spectroscopy of K2 Using Laser-Induced Fluorescence," published in 1968. Since that date, the technique of zapping a sample with a laser to make it fluoresce is called laser-induced fluorescence. What the technique does is allow chemists to probe the actual orbitals of atoms and molecules. To see how the electrons wrap around the nuclei in molecules, from all the spectral lines you detect, you can see the various orbitals. You can see the types of vibrational motion that the molecules' atoms do, and even detect the ways the molecule rotates. This is all based on the quantization of vibration and rotation that we talked about in previous episodes. It's really a godsend to chemists. To get this kind of detail on molecules, one of the first areas of chemistry that laser-induced fluorescence came to was combustion chemistry. Clearly, a popular topic since the 1700s, as we have heard throughout this series. Combustion often happens in the gas phase, so zapping whatever might be in flames and see how the molecules fluoresce could be very useful. Combustion is at high temperatures. There are all kinds of turbulence and motion in flames, and molecular species come into and out of existence at a fast pace. If you can catch these molecules with a quick laser zap, you're in luck. This became a common theme of laser-induced fluorescence in the 1970s. Within the studies of flames, the OH molecule, the hydroxy radical, became a classic case. Other molecules laser-induced fluorescence found included CH, CN, 
NH-NO-HNO-SH-HCN-C3-CH3O and C2, and they are all reactive species for they aren't easily captured in flasks. So, applied physics now has changed chemistry by the 1970s. The existing lasers in the early to mid-1960s only emitted light at fixed wavelengths. What if the electron jumps you wanted to probe weren't at those wavelengths? Can you design a tunable laser so that you can adjust the light's energy and wavelength to exactly what you need? Chemistry now gave back to applied physics. Americans Peter Sorokin and J.R. Lankard at IBM invented such a tunable laser in 1966, as did Fritz Schaefer in Germany at the same time. Sorokin and Lankard's laser used an organic dye, chloroaluminum phthalocyanine, in alcohol solution, and it emitted light just at the border between visible and infrared giving a very deep red light at 755 nanometers. Schaefer tried a variety of organic dyes and was able to get laser light in the red to near-infrared range as well. As an example, let's look at Sorokin and Lankard's laser dye molecule, chloroaluminum phthalocyanine. It's a four-lobed ring with some other organic groups containing nitrogens, just like vitamin B12, chlorophyll, and heme. Instead of iron or magnesium, which the nitrogens grab onto in the middle, this molecule has aluminum as the metal atom in the middle of its ring. This organometallic molecule is a vivid blue and has conjugated, that is, alternating single and double bonds that are known for strongly colored molecules. Dye molecules for laser purposes need a strong absorption band to pump the electrons up in energy to a population inversion, but also need a strong fluorescence that doesn't match the absorption wavelength. These days, researchers have all sorts of organic dyes useful for lasers, so that lasers can be built with visible wavelengths from violet all the way to red. For example, the still beans give violet laser light, fluorescein is green, and rhodamine 6G gives yellow-orange light. The dye molecules allow you to tune your laser over a band of energies or wavelengths from maybe 20 nanometers back and forth to, in some cases, over a 100 nanometers range. And such a tunable laser lets you pick exactly which suborbital to excite with a photon and see how fluorescence happens. The laser flashes can be as short as picoseconds, trillionths of a second, giving chemists a glimpse of how reactions proceed over time. Think of the process like a photographer's flash gun. You can practically stop rapid motion, including molecular vibrations, if you carefully design your experiment. That's where the progress of pulsed lasers went in the 1970s through the 1980s. My own chemical research includes working with dye lasers for laser-induced fluorescence experiments in the mid-1980s. By this time, 
chemists were expanding their chemical interests to all kinds of organic molecules, and my work involved the molecule perylene. Perylene is a hydrocarbon containing two sets of fused benzene rings, making a large flat molecule. If you heat up the perylene and pass an inert gas like helium or argon over it, the perylene molecules detach or sublimate from their solid form into the gas phase and can be carried into a small chamber where the laser can excite the molecules to fluoresce. Sometimes the perylene molecules and carrier gas atoms attract each other very weakly perhaps from the motions of the electrons around their orbitals. This weak attraction forms a weak group of atom plus perylene called a van der Waals complex, named in the 1970s after the Dutch scientist Johannes van der Waals. The bond between the helium atom and the molecule is dozens or a hundred times weaker than regular chemical bonds. Any serious molecular vibrations including warming up the complex, will fling the atom away from the large molecule it sits on. You can also allow other small molecules to enter the carrier gas stream and interact with the perylene to form a van der Waals complex. The laser-induced fluorescence of this complex can tell us what sort of electronic rearrangements happened when the complex forms, how the atom sits next to the perylene molecule, and maybe even act as a simple model for how solution molecules interact with what they dissolve. This carrier gas method is technically called a free expansion of the gas. That is, you let the gas pass through a tiny nozzle into a vacuum, and it very rapidly tries to expand to fill the volume of your fluorescence chamber. Just before the gas reaches the nozzle, the atoms pile up against each other and collide a lot. The process forces the atoms in one direction, out the nozzle. When the gas expands so fast, the individual molecules, the individual atoms cannot bang into each other anymore, and they cool down to cryogenic temperatures past the nozzle and in the vacuum. This brings up a weirdness about temperature. Normally, we consider temperature to be the amount of random motion of atoms and molecules. More random motion means a higher temperature. But in the free expansion, the gas atoms have a high speed in one direction, but very little random motion in the other directions. The atoms move fast unidirectionally, but are cold. This coldness allows the van der Waals complexes to hang together and not fling themselves apart. I discussed this oddity about temperature in an article I published in the Journal of Chemical Education back in 1986 called, quote, Temperature Cool But Quick, unquote. Two things to note about laser-induced fluorescence. One, it changed how many physical chemistry laboratories looked. Instead of flasks and glassware, such laser laboratories are constructed on optical benches which are big, flat, heavy tables with steel tops. The tops are perforated with a regular array of screw holes, so you can place and screw down all manner of lenses, beam blockers, mirrors, irises, and other optical apparatus to direct your laser beam properly. 
Such a lab looks more like an optical workshop. The only glassware might be a bottle to hold the dye compound, solvent bottles to dissolve your dye into, some pipettes and volumetric flasks to measure your solvent, and small cuvettes to hold the mixed solvent plus dye in your laser setup. Two, dye lasers in those days were incredibly finicky. You had to be really careful with your setup in order to get a decent laser beam. In our next episode, we turn back to environmental chemistry and look at several environmental problems that attracted attention in the 1970s. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. Music